Well, the Irish in Sweden is it parades you are after? Jesus, I'll give her a parade if it's parades you are after. We're, it's ramping up, lads. Ramping up. There is not one but two parades to be had this year. My name, of course, is Philip O'Connor. I am sitting in the capital city of Stockholm. Let's face it, lads. The biggest city, however much the boys and girls down below in Malmo and in Gothenburg would like to be up there. But Malmo are making a play to be the centre of the Nordic region, if you don't mind. They're going to be having their own St. Patrick's Day parade down there again this year. And it is magnificent to see. Uh, we heard from the boys and girls last week in Fagan's pub about celebrating their 25th anniversary and I am still kicking myself that I wasn't able to be down there. I've actually been in Dublin over the weekend and I really would have loved to have been down there because such a gathering of the Irish luminaries from the, the music and the pub scene and point men and point women and lads knocking back the stout and telling the yarns and having the crack. It would have been magnificent altogether and they shall be doing it all over again on the 17th of March. Uh, keep an eye out now because I know, I think it is actually Peter Miller, the former bartender slash manager slash sourest man of the world at times he's only letting on he's actually great crack i think it's actually him that's organizing the whole thing in malmo this year so i don't have the details to hand uh, but get in touch uh, go on to fagan's facebook page because I, something tells me in my little bones that that may very well be where uh, seeing as they don't have the embassy down there that that will be where the parade does wind up and get involved bring as much color and as much crack and as much joy as possible to it because it is absolutely brilliant to see there may well be a parade of lads from one of the building sites above Illulio or in yavla all the way down to um, their local boozer <laughs> if uh, if i know anything but that may be the extent of the st patrick's day parade in the rest of Sweden. So uh, the one in Stockholm is taking place on the 18th, Saturday the 18th, and I think everybody in Kungsgården in the centre of town at one o'clock, and the parade itself will take off at half past one. So uh, that is all up for grabs at the moment. So uh, And again, I think they're actually looking for stewards, so if you can get in touch with the Swedish Irish Society, again, get onto their Facebook page, right, and see what they're doing there, because there's usually a sort of a call put out. I know that they have uh, very generously offered a little donation to the Stockholm Gales Gaelic Football and hurling club uh, for people taking part as stewards which is fantastic I love to see that sort of cross community uh, thing going on there you know people being able to help one another out so if you can get involved there please do and if you can't just join in lads uh, last year there was Guinness Zero on sale there I think there was regular Guinness on sale there in uh, Kungsted Gordon as well there was some absolutely brilliant music and there was Irish dancing as there always is and we had our own ambassador uh, Austin Gormley who was there and I think uh, we had the Ukrainian ambassador to Sweden as well, who was the guest of honour there as well. Of course, that would have been just at the start of uh, what the Russians call their special operation. The rest of us called an invasion that was happening in Ukraine and is still ongoing there. So there's lots going on in the community coming up to St. Patrick's Day. But this, oh yeah, the other thing that uh, I'm going to be going back down to Malmo now as you hear this, right? So this will come out on the Monday morning. And on the Thursday, I'll be winging my way down to the south of the country as well. Because you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to Stina from Timsig. Timsig is the Irish music session in Gothenburg. And I was also talking to Dog Vestling from Quilty. And time flies, lads. So the Quilty anniversary tour is coming up very shortly. And due to arrive in Sweden next Thursday, I think, is no less a luminary than Andy Irvine, um, one of the members of Planksty, uh, possibly one of the greatest folk or trad bands uh, that have ever walked the earth himself, along with Donald Lunny, Liam O'Flynn and Christy Moore, of course, uh, sort of changed the face of Irish music. Them together with the likes of, you know, Moving Hard, 
Hearts, which Christy was also involved in. Uh, so yeah, so he's coming and he's going to be playing with uh, with Quilty as they go around the country. And there's a whole bunch of dates involved there, and it's uh, it's going to be fascinating to see. So I'm going to go down there and see if I can grab a quick chat with Andy whilst I'm down there talking to a few other people. Grab a quick chat with Andy just ahead of the tour there. So you can go to Quilty's Facebook page or to their website as well, and you'll get all the details about that tour. Right now, this is like I can't remember if it was ten or twelve years ago, right? But there's a good few years ago. There's a gig on here in the Bearwald Holland in. Stockholm, right? It's owned by Sveriges Radio, as far as I remember. And it was Martin Hayes and Dan- Dennis Cahill. It was Lunasa. It was the Martin O'Connor trio. And it was Karen Casey was there uh, singing as well, right? And I remember talking to some of the, the younger fellas and girls who were in part of the community at the time who weren't really into traditional Irish music at the time. And I was going, lads, buy the tickets, right? I don't care if you've never heard of these people. If you've never heard them play before, if you couldn't pick them out of uh, the Schlager Festival or the Eurovision or whatever, go and see it. Because when you experience a musician like Andy Irvine and like Quilty, a band like Quilty Live, your life just changes, right? And, you know, you may walk away and never go and see them again or never listen to anything by the member again. But just in that moment, that, that, that Irish music, that folk music played live is just something to be experienced. Now, the Quilty's webpage has all the venues and all the tickets and that kind of thing. They're going to be in Yavla on St. Patrick's Day. So I'd highly, highly recommend getting yourself along to that concert and having a listen to that as well because it's going to be absolutely brilliant. I'm also going to have a chat with John Noonan down there about uh, we have an awful lot of teachers in the community and John was saying to me last time I was down there in Malmo when we were recording in Fagan's pub he said I'll come back down and talk to the teachers with me so yeah we're going to do that and I'm going to take a little trip across the bridge as well because Ema from Tourism Ireland I've been talking to her as well and we're going to talk a little bit about how tourism in Ireland is marketed here in the Nordic region and who they're looking for and why it's so difficult to rent a car and all those other things besides you know but that is not what this episode is about this week this episode is about something entirely different she wasn't reading the paper there a few months ago and I discovered that there's an Irishman taking the Swedish government to court. There's a what Phil? There's an Irishman taking the Swedish government to court is what I said. And the case is known as Anton Foley and others versus Sweden. Uh, in brackets it's called the Aurora case. It's still pending. It hasn't been uh, hasn't made it in front of a judge yet, right? But basically I'm going to read you very briefly the summary of what this is about, right? And it says, on November 25th, 2022, a group of over 600 young people born between the years of 1996 and 2015 filed a class action lawsuit against the Swedish state, arguing that Sweden's action on mitigating climate change is inadequate and thus in violation of their rights under the European Convention of human rights the echr now sweden is one of those places right we've all we all know about Gesa Thunberg. we all know about the fridays for future and the school strike for the climate and all that kind of thing and our own anton foley who was born and raised over here um his dad is irish has gotten involved in this whole thing and i decided right i have to get this chap down here to talk to me and to explain this whole thing to me full disclosure i have filmed i don't know how many of these protests for the reuters news agency i've interviewed getha thunberg many times you've heard me say in the podcast before about her dog uh, roxy is actually a rescue dog from cork um, so I've been sort of around that environment for a long time and I've always been impressed by the young people who take part in this kind of environmental activism, right? Now, you can argue the toss and away you go, lads. I'm not going to argue with you. You can argue the toss about, oh, you know, they should be in school and all that kind of thing, right? But I think it's very, very important when you have young, idealistic and energetic young people uh, to listen to them and to hear what they have to say about these things and to hear and, to, you know, to, to really listen to what their concerns are. So a couple of weeks ago, I asked Anton if he would come down to my little studio here in Stockholm 
Stockholm and discuss these things and he did and we had a very very long and fruitful discussion about the case and why he decided to take it and sure here it comes for you now Anton Foley, tell me why you decided to sue the Swedish government on behalf of the environment. Yeah, so uh, obviously we're in a multifaceted climate and ecological emergency and government action is still moving in the wrong directions. Missions are increasing and at the same time we're hearing these promises and fancy words about how we're heading in the right direction when all the numbers and all the science is saying the exact opposite we're heading in the wrong direction and when you're in this type of situation you take um you take every every tool at your disposal in order to um uh to combat this so that that includes protests that includes civil disobedience and that includes uh legal action and taking 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 governments to court is an important part of a uh, democratic justice system. Mm. Um, was it the 25th of November last year that it sort right. of became official, the p- papers were presented to the court? What's the basis of the action that you're taking against the government? So the basis of the action uh, legally is the ECHR, so the European Convention on Human Rights, um, which uh, binds uh, most countries in Europe, and it's um, it, it encoded into Swedish law. Um, and basically our argument is that the climate crisis is violating and is threatening to violate the human rights of young people in Sweden. Uh, we will face consequences uh, from the climate crisis that threaten our uh, right to life, our right to health, um, to a livable environment, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's a fairly simple argumentation that um, the Swedish government, by not taking... Uh, sufficient action to reduce its emissions is failing to do its fair share of the global uh, action needed uh, and therefore is in violation of uh, this responsibility to protect our human rights. Um, It's not something one does lightly, right? So when you arrive and, you know, bang on the door of the court and say, right, I'm going to sue the government, did you have to get legal advice from sort of qualified lawyers? Or is this something that sometimes citizens can can do these things themselves? Uh, Which path did you decide to go down? Yeah, well, obviously, we have legal professionals involved. It's... um a challenging court case. It's not something that's been done in Sweden before. The precedent has been set in various countries in Europe and around the world, um, but it's still very new, very cutting edge. So there's a lot of sort of creativity uh, that the lawyers need to employ in order to figure out how to go about this. Uh, So we've had a fairly sizable uh, team of lawyers involved in uh, advising and, and, and producing the actual lawsuit. And actually, a lot of it's been done by law students and, and young lawyers who are working pro bono on this as, as part of a sort of wider environmental movement um, with young people um, deciding to take action. Um, that was going to be the next question, but you kind of answered it there, because legal action is often extremely expensive. And the higher up the court system you go, <laughs> I can see you go, Jesus, I yeah. know, you know. Um, how do you deal with that? Because I'd imagine that a certain amount of it can be done by legal students pro bono. But at some point, somebody's going to have their hand out and say, look, you guys got to pay me if I'm going to take this before a judge. Yeah, so our lead lawyer is obviously paid. I mean, you can't really 
get anything done otherwise. Um, and I'm actually in charge of funding for the case. So that has been one of the major challenges in order to uh, figure out how much money do we need and then how, how do we procure these fairly sizable amounts of, uh, of funds. And uh, a lot of it's been coming through crowdfunding, which has been immensely successful. Uh, when we've produced media attention, we, we've generated um, uh, large uh, sums of money, actually. Um, and... Uh, we're, we're, we're looking uh, every way we can um, find money is uh, being explored so um, yeah well, were you surprised by how much legal action cost because sometimes you go oh, yeah, okay well I'll do that and it'll cost 20, 30, 50 thousand definitely a bit of a shock <laughs> definitely it? a bit of a shock how much money do you think between your thumb and your pointing finger as we say in Swedish how much money would you actually need if you were going to be successful with this kind of legal action uh, well, you need to separate two separate categories here. First, we've got our direct costs, and that's how much do we need to pay our lawyers, mm. uh, which is the majority of our expenses. Um, we have very few other expenses other than legal costs. And the other part is that if we lose and we become um, liable for, the liable position, for yeah. our position costs, uh, that can really run away from you. And it's also really difficult for us to predict. It's obviously the, the Swedish government and the Swedish state has... Uh, significantly larger resources than we do so they can they, they they might be able to pull in really really expensive um a really expensive law firm and then mm-hmm. then those costs can really really get away from us um but it's uh, a few hundred thousand euros is the sort of um what we're talking about for for direct costs um a couple hundred thousand euros and then uh how much we w- might end up uh, being liable to pay for is uh, hard, hard to know, but yeah. the, the same amount and upwards. It's, yeah, so it's, it's a presumption. It's not going to cost less than your own legal costs anyway. Presumably not. Yeah. Um, your name, and this is the reason we're talking, is because your name is the one that's on the legal papers. It's Anton Foley and others who are taking on the Swedish government. Does that right. mean that you personally could end up being liable for these hundreds of thousands, if not millions of euros that uh, in legal costs, should this not turn out in your favour? Technically, yes, but through a contract with Aurora as the organisation, which is the organisation I'm part of and the organisation who is who's prepared this case and is bringing the case. Um, we have a contract there, which means that it's uh, like... They take on the liability. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So we as an organisation will cover that and take on that liability. So um, we're working as an organisation now. And like I said, I'm in charge of funding. So a large part of the funding work is trying to find money to be able to be insured against that um that risk when you talk to your lawyers i often find when you talk to lawyers like they're the most positive people in the world and then you pay them and they go oh no that was never going to work you know what do they see as your chances of success is this a toss of a coin is it 50 50 is it 80 percent chance you're going to win is it 10 percent that's the kind of question that everybody wants to know. We want to put a percentage on it. And it's really, really difficult to predict because, like I said, this is groundbreaking. It's the first time it's being done. So there's there's no real precedent to run by. We do see that environmental cases or climate action lawsuits like this have been really effective um, and have uh, won, have been won in, in, in various countries around the world, most notably maybe in, in, in France, Germany and the Netherlands, recently in Europe, which is notable because uh, the the basis for those cases is largely the ECHR, just as it is for us. So um, in, in countries with similar legal systems, with the same legal papers sort of being the, the ground for um, our claims, um, cases have been won. 
but we are doing things slightly differently from they, them. Um, we are trying new things, we are experimenting, and obviously each, each country will have its own unique system, and you never know what judges you're going to get or what, how, how the courts will respond. So um, it's very, very difficult to predict. It's always a risky business because the other thing is, you know, one judge might decide in your favour, another might decide, and they're very learned people, they know what they're dealing with. Um, the basis of that case, do you have to prove, because if I want to sue somebody, usually I have to prove that I personally have been injured by this. Um, do, will you be asked to make that case in court, do you think, or is this just something that's going to be worked out behind closed doors between your lawyers, their lawyers and the Swedish legal system? That's actually a really interesting question. I don't know how much of the disagreement will be worked out behind closed doors and how much will actually end up in a court. And like, I'm not a law student. I haven't studied law, so I'm new to all of this. And it's it's really exciting figuring out uh, how this type of thing happens in practice. Um, Our case is a bit different. We're not working on the case that we've already suffered damages, but it's based on the risk Mm. of uh, those human rights being violated in the future. And that's why all of the claimants were 600 young people who are sort of claimants against the state here. Uh, why everybody's young? Because, um, yeah, like the climate crisis is already hitting today, but it will escalate uh, into the future. And um, it's really interesting. Like we haven't received a response from the state yet. First, the court needs to make a decision on whether they'll hear the case or not. Mm. After that, the state will come with a response. And then there'll be a sort of back and forth of... Uh, letters uh, before we actually end up uh, in a courtroom, uh, which I'm very excited for. Uh, tell me about Aurora, because Sweden seems to be, you have Fridays for Future, you have uh, various different other environmental organisations that have been started in this country. Is Aurora something that you started yourself with your friends, or how did that come into being? Yeah, so I'm also involved with Fridays for Future in Sweden, and Aurora actually started as a sort of group of Fridays for Future activists who saw this happening in other countries and thought, let's do it in Sweden. Uh, And that's about two years ago. We started chatting to various lawyers, getting a group of law students together, um, getting more and more activists involved, trying to figure out, like, what are we dealing with? How how do we start? And then we founded the organization Aurora last summer, uh, like summer 2022, um, no, 2021. And uh, since then, we've been sort of figuring out how to get organized ourselves, get funds in, get legal professionals in, and then actually produce a lawsuit. And this is notably different from many other court cases uh, or climate cases around Europe, where they've often been brought by established organizations. Mm. This is brought by a very grassroots organization that's very young and founded by youth. So it's a very different situation financially and organizationally uh, compared to various other cases. Um, Sweden has this great reputation from yourselves, Friday for, Fridays for Future, Geta Thun Bay, uh, the Axelsson sisters are involved there as well. They're always great to get on camera. They speak better English than I do. Um, why do Swedish teenagers, Swedish young people feel this so strongly uh, to the extent that they're prepared to act as much as they do? They're prepared to take their own government to court over it. Yeah, I think Sweden is, um, we feel a major frustration with Swedish policy because Sweden is touted and lauded as being such a climate leader and talked about as leading the green transition and being 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 world leading on climate and environmental issues. And once you start like ex- actually examining this, it's all a facade. It's all based on creative accounting, loopholes and um, gre- greenwashing, basically. So I think there is a major frustration among Swedish youth that this is 
the 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 awareness of this is so low. So I think that's one of the things that really drives me, the sort of massive disconnect between what's actually going on in Sweden and what people think is going on in Sweden. Um, but we can also see that this is a global movement of youth who are, there is a, a similar case being brought in Norway now, also by youth. Youth have been involved in the climate cases in, in, in Germany, and there's a case in from Portugal where six Portuguese young people are suing basically all of Europe. They're suing the entire EU and, and other six states for, for lack of climate action. So... It, it's not concentrated in Sweden. It, it is a global movement of youth using every tool at their disposal in order to, um, in order to, to get climate action, basically to affect change. Really, yeah. Um, it's always struck me that you know when the international media comes to me and they say, "Okay, there's a climate protest going on. These young people uh, in Sweden are protesting, and there might be ten, fifteen, twenty thousand people walking to Medborgarplatsen or something right down there by the by the Parliament House." And I often wondered if the government just weathers the storm. Okay, you go out there, you march, you bring your loud hailer, you bring your banners, and then we all go home and nothing changes. What response have you had from politicians that you've spoken to, from academics that you've spoken to? Because it strikes me that they're kind of just waiting, you know, for all this to pass, that they expect that, you know, they'll just continue on as normal if they just say nothing and do nothing. Do you get the same impression? Or do you feel that on some levels of government that there is a willingness and a desire for change? It's an interesting question because in, in my experience, talking to politicians is a bit like talking to a brick wall. They'll invite you because they want to have a discussion and they want to mostly talk about how they've had a discussion with young climate activists. And then you'll you'll talk and you'll bring up all your issues and then they'll ignore everything you say and try to talk to you and explain to you that they're actually doing something. And I definitely feel um, heard in what you say that they're just waiting for this to pass. They're waiting. And in, in large, in large, like cynically it has in in many ways like the climate movement in sweden in 2019 was massive we had 50,000 marching on the 27th of september um and then the pandemic hit and the momentum died and the media just hasn't picked up again and the momentum hasn't picked up again and now we're getting um under 10,000 like every time we try to mobilize for a big demonstration and that's one of the reasons i think that it's so important to do new things, to try, try, try new things, and use all the tools at our disposal. And like suing the Swedish government is that's a new tool. That's doing something new, um, and showing that we're we're not going anywhere. We're, we're in this for the long run. This is a long run project. It'll take several years for this to um, finish, presumably. And I think it's important to show that that we are still here. We are still fighting. We still care about this, and the situation is just getting worse. Um, and therefore, we, we we can't afford to to stop. Um, it's almost become uh, there's many friends of mine, many Irish people who will talk about the brand of Sweden. You know, you mentioned it yourself there that you know, oh, they've greenwashed themselves. Oh, you know, they're at the cutting edge of environmental technologies and all that. When in fact, the numbers are going in the wrong direction. Have we made a mistake in having so much focus on one person in Greta Thunberg, who, despite the fact that her wonderful dog Roxy is from Cork, and so she has her Irish connection as well, is that a mistake on the behalf of the media, on behalf of journalists, that you know we sort of invest her with all this meaning and then we just ignore everything else that happens? What she says is important for 15 minutes and we kind of ignore everybody else. What would you like to see? How would you like to see journalists approach the climate crisis in Sweden and around Europe in the way we cover it? Well, you're absolutely right that it becomes a massive individual focus. You focus on, on Greta or other individuals. And when, when it's other people in other countries, they're often referred to as the German Greta Thunberg or, or the French Greta Thunberg. And it just shows that 
we can't really the media is choosing not to sort of talk about the movements they're talk, not talking about the sort of collective um people's movements demanding change and they they need to talk about one person and then like you say they listen to that message and then it disappears and like her message from the start has been don't listen to me listen to the experts listen to the people who are who are suffering the consequences of the climate crisis already talk to the people in the global south who are having their 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 communities destroyed their their lives taken away and uh, their families dying etc talk to those people talk to the climate scientists who know what's going on don't listen to me and the media keep giving her the platform and they keep they keep inviting her to say the same things over and over and over again without like actually changing the way they report about the crisis because there's no there's no reporting of the climate crisis as if it was a crisis it's reported as yet another issue mm-hmm. uh, it's not talked about as an existential crisis and if it was it would dominate all news media all over the place it would dominate every business meeting every conversation just like covid did mm-hmm. when the pandemic hit we realized we were in a crisis and we talked about it that way with the climate crisis we're not we kind of just ignore it we tip away and we keep going on we go ah oh, yeah no, somebody will sort that out eventually exactly it's know? too big and we don't take it in um if we look at your your own upbringing here i mean for us it's kind of amazing to stand back and see anton foley you know uh, with his connection to ireland taking this case um, where does your connection to ireland come from where does your accent come from so my dad's irish and he grew up in Tipperary. uh and when i was uh, 10 i lived in dublin for a year um so our family moved there my mum's swedish and they met in london when they were both studying there and then so i was born in sweden and i've lived my whole life in sweden with aside from the one year um we lived in dublin um and then uh, i have a lot of family in, in my grandparents are in Tipperary and the rest of my family in in dublin so uh, i have a lot of contact with them and uh really uh is it something that's that. very close to your heart kind of thing yeah, yeah absolutely uh i feel irish as much as i feel swedish uh sort of very much I think often a lot of people, they're like, you're half Swedish, half Irish. And it's like, no, I'm Irish and I'm Swedish. Yeah. Uh, there's no half. Oh, yeah, involved. I usually refer to it as being both Swedish and Irish exactly. rather than half of nothing. Exactly. Kind of thing, you know? um, have you had any contact with or any interest from Ireland? Have you had contact with Irish environmental activists, for instance? Have you been there to speak about the case that you're taking? Uh, no, not in relation to Aurora. I know uh, a number of people because Fridays for Future is such a global and international movement. I, I know several environmental and climate activists in Ireland. Um, and I've actually had contact with some, some researchers as well uh, and, and lawyers who are Irish, but not um, haven't, haven't been there since the, since the case was launched. Um, if we look back to the last election, which took place in September of last year, now it's amazing, it seems like an awful long time ago, um, we we got, I wouldn't call it a centre-right government, we got an extremely right-wing government there. Milieu uh, Partiet, the Green Party here in Sweden, was roundly abused and uh, left, right and centre, online, offline, on the news, etc., etc. Why does environmental politics get such a hard time in a country which the rest of Europe sort of looks to as a bit of a beacon on that front. Uh, why is the domestic political discourse around green politics and around environmentalism so tough, do you think? Because people feel threatened. People feel threatened by people telling it how it is. We go out there and we say, yeah, we're in an existential crisis. We need to adapt. Everything's been doing wrong so far. And right now we need to change every aspect of our society. And when we're saying that, we're not making it up. We're quoting the IPCC, like the, a conservative scientific body by the UN, 
who, who produce incredible assessments of climate science, they say we need fundamental and far-reaching changes in all aspects of society. And we go out there and people, people, feel, people feel threatened. They, and, they, and they feel scared and they don't want to take in it, so they deny it. And then they abuse the people who, um, who, who try to say this. And it's um, a, a massive issue that people who are, because it, it, it discourages people and it scares people off telling it how it is because there is so much, so much abuse. Um, yeah. One of the expressions that you hear a lot um, when Geta's down there on a Friday morning or when there's a rally or when Aurora are taking cases like this is the expression climate justice. A lot of people my age and older maybe hear that and we don't actually know what it means. What, what does climate justice mean to you? What do you want to see in the way of climate justice? Well, climate justice is all about understanding the intersection between climate change and the climate crisis and ecological collapse and other aspects of social justice. So gender equality, racial equality, uh, class justice, all of these, all of these things. Uh, global justice between the global, north and the global north and the global south. And this is very concrete. Like, we see that the climate crisis has been created by not humanity as a whole, but by a very small portion of humanity. It's being created by mostly rich people in the global north that means europeans that means north americans that means japan and south korea and australia and this is one of the things that i think people feel threatened by because they realize that we are responsible for the disasters that are killing millions around the world and despite the global north and rich people being the sort of people with the highest carbon footprints the people who are causing this disaster they're not the people affected by it Africa is the most uh, climate vulnerable continent and uh, is only responsible for 3% of cumulative carbon emissions, um, while, while the US and Europe are responsible f- for most of the emissions and we are not being hit. We are adapting. Uh, the, the, the impacts we are seeing in Europe and the US, we can adapt to. Um, like almost 99% of uh, climate-related deaths occur in the global south and uh, those countries are not responsible for the crisis. So it's about realizing that the, the most affected are the people who are least responsible, uh, which means that we as global north countries and rich countries have a responsibility to lead this transition and to lead the um, transition to to a clean uh, green economy. And uh, we can see that in our case. We're centering climate justice in the case. And this has always been at the center of international climate frameworks that rich countries need to lead the way. This means that Sweden has a disproportionately large share of emissions reductions. We have a a big responsibility because we have high emissions historically and because we're a rich country with a large capacity to um, make the transition. Uh, So this means that Sweden needs to reach uh, zero emissions way before countries such as uh, Sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia or Latin America, etc. So that justice aspect is at the centre of our case uh, meaning that Sweden needs to reach zero emissions way before uh, it would otherwise. A lot of people will listen to what you're saying there and they will think that I like my life at the moment. I like my diesel car. I like my skiing holiday on Sportlovet. I like to go to Thailand at Christmas and to get away from this snow and that kind of thing. What has to change? Do like, you know, people will say, to you, oh, you know, they want us all to become vegan and to wear sort of hemp shirts and that kind of thing. What kind of things have to change just to avert the crisis, let alone sort of reverse it? I think it's all about education. I think we have a good word in Swedish called folkbildning, yeah. uh, which is sort of broad, voluntary public education for everybody. And I think if people realized what kind of shit we're in, then 
there wouldn't be that attitude. Like there wouldn't be that the resistance. The resistance mean. because people care about other people. I believe that people like care about their friends, their families, and even people they don't know. People are genuinely sort of empathetic creatures. And like I believe that if people realize that the way we're living our lives is leading to not exaggeration, millions dying every year in other parts of the world. If people actually understood that on a fundamental level and understood that this is only going to get worse and that soon we might reach points of no return where the climate crisis becomes, starts and like um, it feedback, hits feedback loops that means the warming um, enforces itself. Yeah. I think if people understood that on a fundamental level, then that would change. Uh, I also think there's like a mindset that we've been taught to think in a certain way. We've been sort of imprinted with a sort of consumerist thought that we'll be happier if we just get that extra large car, if we if we get that expensive watch or if we can buy more clothes. But there's like all studies show that after a certain point, buying more stuff doesn't make us happier. We sort of think it does because we need to aspire to sort of have as much stuff as the the people who are one step above us in the sort of societal hierarchy. They have private jets, they have mega yachts, therefore we need to move in that direction as well. But there's nothing showing that that actually makes us happier. What actually makes us happier is sort of, it's community, it's doing stuff with our friends, it's um, having strong bonds with our family, it's access to nature, all of this stuff, um, sports and culture and art, music, all of this stuff is what actually gives happiness if you listen to sort of empirical research on this Mm. if we created societies that could center this instead of consistently having to buy more and more and more stuff every year then we'd have not only a healthier planet and healthier ecosystems we'd also have happier people Mm. um and that's been shown that communities that that live more in in tune with nature are happier Mm. Um, it's interesting what you say because when you look at how Sweden celebrates midsummer, for instance, there's that aspect of quite simple food, often preserved, so that you're making the most of the previous harvest, etc. Go swim in a lake, that's free still, as far as I know. That all these things are very simple pleasures and that they are very much at the heart of Swedish culture. Is this consumerism? Now, you're a lot younger than me, so maybe I should be the one asking this question. Is this consumerism a new thing in Sweden, do you think? Is it, you know, have we abandoned that sort of, you know, Olaf Palme's people's home that he talked about through the 70s and the 80s in, and adopted this sort of, you know, consumerism on steroids that the rest of the world seems to be such a big fan of? Yeah, like there's been a massive change in attitudes to to this in Sweden since the late 80s and the 90s and we've been sort of hit by the global sort of neoliberal wave of Milton Friedman and Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and people like that and that sort of came to Sweden in the 90s and we sort of changed the way we approached um, our society and we started restructuring that and I think that definitely involved that the consumerist sort of approach got even stronger in Sweden but it's it's existed for longer than that and it's I really like what you're saying about Midsummer. I love Midsummer. I think it's a lovely tradition uh, and I've, I've always really enjoyed it. And like you said, it's sort of very simple things. But by the way we measure progress in our society, which is largely by GDP and GDP growth, none of the activities you said contribute to contribute to that. Um, buying a larger car will contribute to that, but it won't make me happy the same way that swimming in a lake with my family and eating um, herring. I don't eat herring. I don't like herring, but eating herring on midsummer uh, will. Like that. that's what makes us... That's what makes us genuinely happy. But that's not included in the sort of 
metrics we use to, to measure progress and to measure how healthy society is. Mm. And if we want to get anywhere about this, we need to, we need to reframe that and we need to reframe what matters. A lot of the opposition, uh, when this podcast comes out, for instance, as soon as it goes out on Instagram, there's going to be comments under it about... There's a couple of ways of looking at it. One is that this is like a Trojan horse for some form of communism. This some you know sort of pie in the sky aspirational. Yay! Let's all be in this together. Stalinism kind of thing. You know, um, there is an undeniably a, a, like a certain left wing tint to it. But is that a fair reflection of what young people in the climate justice movement want? That they want a more egalitarian society on every level. I want a more egalitarian society, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I do, however, think it's very interesting that as soon as you start talking about, yeah, maybe we shouldn't, like, commit collective suicide and set fire to the world, that the immediate response as soon as you say that is calling you a communist. That's That, that says a lot, I think. Um, but yes, I absolutely want a more egalitarian society, and I think we need to live, I think we as people would be happier, everybody would be happier if we lived... Um, in a sense, where we could actually satisfy everybody's needs. And that's also a large part of what climate justice is about. How do we meet everybody's needs um, while living within planetary boundaries? And all studies show that it's very possible. It's very possible. We just need to stop the vast overconsumption that we're going on with. Like Mm. 50% of carbon emissions are emitted by the uh, richest 10% in the world. And if the richest 10% in the world lowered their carbon emissions to the uh, average European which is still significantly too high, like a third of all global greenhouse gas emissions would be um, erased. That's a massive reduction just from like the richest going down to what is already a very like um, superfluous lifestyle. Mm. So I think we need to understand that we can lift billions out of poverty. We can make sure everybody has access to clean water, education, uh, housing, um free healthcare, all of this stuff, food security, energy security, we can achieve all this within planetary boundaries. We just can't do it while also flying private jets all over the world. Mm. And we're sort of at a precipice where the vast inequalities that dominate our world have come to a point where we're facing ecological collapse. And we either need to decide, do we, do we keep going? Do we keep running towards the abyss? And in the end, that will come back to haunt us as well, who are the perpetrators. Or do we actually reshape society in a way that actually uh, is built for people? Hmm. Um, uh, I suppose uh, the term is people, not profit. It's putting people at the center of these things rather than chasing money. Speaking of money, the second comment under the Instagram uh, picture they're going to put out with this episode is going to be that um, you're all bought, that George Soros is paying you all, every single young activist out there, that you're, I've heard the word puppets used so many times. Um, how much does Soros pay you every month, Anton? I wish. <laughs> By the way, if George Soros wants to go to patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm, he can continue <laughs> to support this podcast. But on a serious note... It, who does support you? Is this, you know, just people around the country who, who who share your view of this thing? Like, this lawsuit is mostly publicly funded. Like, we have an open crowdfunder. It's on chef.org. Uh, it's linked on our website and in our social media. And when we handed in our lawsuit and we got massive media attention, we pulled in, like, 
40, 50,000 euros in a very short amount of time in, in a day or two um, from, from this being exposed. And we've, we've raised almost 100,000 euros just, just, just from that crowdfunding. So we have received a massive public support for this. Um, we have no billionaire funders as of yet. Um, and it's also very telling that the same sort of the same people who are attacking the climate activists are the people who will peddle the anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists, cons- conspiracy theories about um, uh, Jewish Illuminati and, and Jewish billionaires, etc. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, one of the things that has been a major topic of discussion this winter has been the cost of energy. And when you look a little bit closer at it, you'll find that there's no shortage of energy in Sweden. In fact, Sweden has never produced more electricity than it's doing at the moment, despite Ringhouse 1 and 2 being out of action. Um, and it's actually the market that and how the prices are set in the market that's the problem. How does the climate justice movement or the people in Aurora, for instance, how do you view nuclear power? Because a lot of people look at it and they go, well, it makes sense. You know, you build that, yeah, loads of electricity, free electricity for everybody. Like the way, you know, you use geothermals in Iceland. Is that something that, you know, that you you look at, you as a movement look at and go, that's a great idea or is it a bad idea? I think the main thing to talk about when it comes to nuclear energy and the climate debate is to understand that we're in a culture war around nuclear energy and that it's been allowed to hijack the entire climate debate in in a sense that we're not talking about the issues. We're not talking about our largest uh, polluting industry, which is the Swedish forestry industry. We're not talking about overconsumption. We're not talking about how our society is structured in a way to prioritize the wrong things. And instead, we've been caught up in a war over nuclear power or no nuclear power? And the answer is, who cares, honestly? Um, to get more technical, Vattenfall, our state energy company, uh, say that we can have nuclear power up and running in Sweden in 15 years, maybe. Mm. Um, 2035, I guess that's 12 years nowadays. Um, and like, if you look at our carbon budgets, we just don't have time to wait for 12 years to have mm. sort of new electricity come online to replace fossil fuels to electrify uh, the industry or whatever. We need to cut emissions tomorrow. And like Sweden should be uh, on zero emissions significantly before we can have any nuclear power come online. So if anybody's talking about nuclear power as a um, climate solution, they just don't understand the urgency of the situation. Um, I think it's also telling that we can't really focus on what matters. Like when we talk about energy, and cutting energy prices, we don't talk about the fact that the, the Swedish forestry industry and the paper industry uh, use like a quarter of Swedish energy and they don't have to pay any uh, electricity tax because that's a massive state subvention. And we don't talk about how the state subsidizes, subvention is not the word in English, subsidy, and we don't talk about how the state subsidizes um, Bitcoin mining, hmm. it, it, like holes, server holes. And those they're using massive amounts of electricity and at the same time people mostly in the south of sweden they can't pay their energy bills because they're they're so high and the energy prices are, are so high so we're just caught up in a situation where we we refuse to look at the root of the problem we're not producing too little energy we're honestly producing too much energy and we need to like scale down destructive industries if we're, if we're going to get out of this mess. That does include Bitcoin mining and it does include uh, clear-cutting forests. If we scale that down, we would have massive reductions in electricity usage and falling prices as a result. 
Uh, and that's even without talking about the structural market reforms that you were talking about, how we import sort of um, how we import electricity prices from uh, fossil gas dependent uh, Germany and Poland, etc. Mm. And that's what sets the, sets the prices for so-called clean energy coming out of Sweden. Um, if you look at Miljöpartiet, the Green Party in Sweden, and this goes for Ireland and it goes for Germany as well. I remember when they first started to rear their head in electrical, electoral politics in the mid-1980s. I think it is a great idea. I have been tremendously disappointed by most of those movements because they've been a third wheel for centre-right and right-wing uh, governments pretty much throughout Europe. Is it a mistake to focus on the environmental aspect? Because earlier on we spoke about climate justice, how the two, like social justice and climate justice go hand in hand. Is the time for that kind of party passed? Is there time? Is it time for a new political movement? Or can you still find something in Milieu Partiet, in the Green Movement, that can actually be useful in terms of electoral politics? Well, I think there's... Um it's important to separate the sort of environmental movement in general and the sort of party political wing of the environmental movement, which has sort of largely deviated. That's true in Sweden for Miljöpartiet. It's definitely true in Ireland for Eamon Ryan and the Greens. And like we see in both of our countries how the Greens, they're not green. They're not talking about any structural reforms. They're not talking about any urgency. They're not talking about drastically cutting emissions. Uh, the Swedish Greens are still buying the myth that our forestry industry is sustainable and that we can reduce our emissions by clear-cutting all of our forests and burning them for energy. Um, and there's sort of no, there's no crisis realization. The crisis realization is completely absent from all parties. And that's another thing that's like so so striking when you realize how bad everything is that there is there is no political party that's proposing anything even close to what we need there's no political party that's peddling demands to treat the crisis like a crisis and when you're in that situation what do you do if if you're told that the way to affect change in your democracy is to uh, join a political party and campaign and get into parliament and become a politician. When there's no party that's doing what they're supposed to do, what do you do? We don't have time to start a new party and wait for that to get public support. Like, what's needed is broad public movements, people standing up where they are and saying, we've had enough. That's the only thing that's ever led to fundamental changes in society. That's how we've won um, gay rights and women's rights. And that's how we uh, workers won the right to vote and the right to shorter working weeks. Like all of this comes from popular movements. It comes from unions, it comes from strikes, and it comes from people standing up for what they believe, coming together and bringing collective action. Um, and the Green parties across Europe don't represent any of that. The Greens in Germany are now supporting the uh, coal mine expansion in Lützerath and called um, the police brutality involved in clearing all of the activists out there necessary. All of this stuff, there's no connection to the people. There's no connection to the people's movements. Hmm. And often we're associated with Miljöpartiet because people just assume... Uh, just bunch you all in together. Just bunch them all in together. Everybody who cares about the environment into the same sort of... Um, basket there's obviously people who are really good people and wanting to do the right thing and saying the right things even within these institutions but we can't forget that the institutions are the problem the way we structure our society is the problem and that change is just not going to come from inside it needs to come from the grassroots level outside putting pressure um so that's why i'm not like engaged in any political party and why i would encourage everybody to join a movement like Friday for future uh, way ahead of joining a uh, political party if you want to make real change for the climate.
when you hang out with people of your own age in Fridays for Future, when you discuss the legal case with Aurora, what's what's the atmosphere like? Are you are you hopeful? Are you angry? Are you fucking ready to give up at this point? I mean, it's honestly a bit of all of it. Like, I'm not going to lie. Obviously, there's despair. Like, you can't not be if you if you read what's going on and you truly understand. There's sort of no there's no denying that there is a level of despair, a level of sort of doesn't matter but in the end we are hopeful not from any change that's coming from any governments not from any of the sort of green transition that's being talked about that's already going on but from the movements like ourselves the movements um that inspire us the people that sort of are standing up for what they believe in who are trying to affect that change where they stand um it's inspiring to see uh, indigenous peoples around the world who have been defending their lands and protecting their biodiversity for centuries despite a complete onslaught um, and attempt to uh, for as well genocide as ecocide and it's inspiring and it's inspiring to see how people have continued fighting and how people continue to fight today and I see sort of historic revolutions I see how um anti-colonial movements in, in Africa and the Middle East and Latin America have sort of achieved democracy. I see how women's movements across the world have won sort of massive strides to get to feminism. I see how all of these things have happened and it's hard to believe that it can't happen again. At the same time, the movement is way too small and we don't have time. Like the carbon budget for uh, exceeding the 1.5 degree limit is exceeded in 2029 with today's emissions which are rising so there's not a lot of time to wait um at the same time we need to believe i need to believe otherwise i couldn't go on mm. like there's no this dominates most aspects of my life at the moment because it's hard to think about anything else once you get that emotional realization of what's going on and what's going to happen it's it's difficult not to um it's difficult to dedicate your life to anything else. What's the most effective thing in terms of convincing people like me, people like your mom and dad, that little bit older, that you're actually right, that this is a crisis and that we've got to do something about this now? What do you find most effective? Because sometimes when we talk about things like, um, especially in this city, when we talk in, in Stockholm about integration and we talk about racism and we, we point the finger at people and people get very, very defensive and I'm thinking that maybe the same thing happens when we talk about the climate crisis, that people become very defensive. Can we put an arm around people's shoulders and try to lead them into this way of thinking that you have? Or do you just have to grab them by the ear and pull them with you? I think it's a mix. Like, on, on one hand, you need to be like, yeah, studies show that if Sweden's emissions were to be in line with our fair share of the 1.5 degree target, we would need to be cutting emissions by about 40% a year starting this year. That's practically impossible. And it's in saying that that isn't enough to get people to react. Partly people think we have it under control because everything they hear from politicians, from media, from um, companies, from everybody, it's we have things under control. Things are going in the right direction. They're going a bit too slowly and we need to ramp it up, but they're going in the right direction. And even, even Miljöpartiet have that rhetoric, like it's going too slowly in the right direction. It's not, it's going in the wrong direction. And once people realize that, I think there's a difference. The other thing, though, I think that you need to, and this is where I think climate justice is so powerful as a, as a term and as a sort of framework for understanding the world, when we realize that the same type of 
policy and the same type of change that is needed and urgently needed to avert the climate crisis and avert the worst consequences of the climate crisis, that same change is what will improve people's lives. That same change is what will um, like lift people out of poverty, uh, fight uh, gender inequality, fight racism, all of this stuff. It goes hand in hand. Um, if we fight the rampant consumerism that dominates our society, we won't be forced to um, work as much as we do today. We won't be forcing people in the global south to sort of work slave labor in order to produce more clothes for us. Um, once we realize that we can sort of, our, our, our liberation is tied together, we can sort of collectively um, work towards the same goal. I think that gets to a lot of people. Um, when you when you show studies that say that, for example, shortening the working week, the, the effect that would have on our greenhouse gas emissions is massive, um, as well as giving us more time to do what we love and spend time with the people we love and, and we see that the public support for policies like that is massive. It's absolutely massive. And yet we have one and a half political parties representing maybe 10% of the population that are actually actively running that demand. And that there's nothing clearer for me that change needs to come from below because it will never come from inside the institutions that are sort of the problem here. Um, and I think... Everybody has a bit of fight in them. Everybody has a bit of sort of resistance. And right now, powerful forces are trying to sort of paint certain groups as sort of scapegoats and direct that anger at the system. Like all of the anger that's leading to the rise of far-right nationalism and racist movements in Sweden comes from austerity, just like it did um, in Germany in the 30s. People were poor. You had the Great Depression, you had hyperinflation, and then someone comes along and says that, yeah, this is all the fault of one particular group of people, mm. and people believe that. And the same thing is happening again today. But if you sort of direct that rage at where it should actually be sort of directed, it's not the immigrants' fault. It's the fault of a sort of global economic and political system that forces people to live like this. And once people start realizing that, then I think it becomes a lot easier um and a lot of the time people say that we're we're like losing focus on the climate issues when we talk about gender inequality when we talk about racism when we talk about all of this stuff but i think it's i think it's a strength talking about all of this because i think that's how you reach people um and and you say that sort of the climate movement you, you show solidarity between movements mm -hmm. there's um my fa my favorite movie uh, is is the film called pride um, which is a really, really beautiful story of solidarity between the gay rights movement in London in the 80s and the um, Welsh coal miners. It's about ironic that it's coal miners in this case, but uh, coal miners uh, strike in, in, in the 80s. And this is under Thatcher. And it's a lovely show of two-way solidarity, how both the gay rights movement and the workers' rights movement got stronger by them supporting each other. Mm. And that's how I think we will do it today the climate movement and the feminist movement and the workers' rights movement, if we all unite and understand that our interests are the same and if we can show that solidarity uh, instead of hating each other, mm. I think then we can get to a really powerful place. What's the process now for the court case? You mentioned that um, you're expecting some sort of uh, response from the government. You're, you'll get a decision from the court whether or not they're prepared to hear your case. When do you expect this to happen? Is this how long is a piece of string territory or what? No, so like the, 
a response from the court should come in a few, like within a few weeks. Um, and that's very, very nervous, obviously. Uh, knowing if they'll sort of hear the case or not, it would be um, very sad and a bit embarrassing if they sort of decided it wasn't worth hearing. In that case, we can always appeal. Um, but that should come within a few weeks. Uh, and then after that, the um, state gets to respond and then back and forth. And then maybe we'll be in, in, in courts, like actual physical court hearing dates this autumn and maybe earliest September, I'd say. But um, it's hard to know exactly. Um, what happens if you win? Our claim and what we mean is that the state has the responsibility to reduce its emissions in line with its fair share in order to limit global temperature rise to one and a half degrees over pre-industrial levels. A lot of technical words, but it basically means we need to follow a really, really strict emissions reductions curve. And aside from reducing our emissions, we also need to restore and protect carbon sinks, so forests and seas and wetlands, etc., that take up massive amounts of carbon from the atmosphere. Um, so once we... If, if we would win, then the state would be legally obliged to follow this emissions reduction curve. Now, what would actually physically happen is they would they would not manage to reduce their emissions in in line with this because this means extremely stringent emissions reductions and in this case reaching net zero around in around five years mm. that's not really going to be at the very least like politically possible they just won't do it and they'll won't worry about the consequences um in practice that means uh you can uh, make the case that uh, like this this lawsuit would set a legal precedent and that might be the most powerful aspect of it because it would mean that every sort of course having to take a decision on a planning permission and every court having to take a decision on any case like of b- building anything or developing a project would need to take a, like um would need to take this emissions reductions curve into account mm. so people wanting to like uh, expand fossil fuel infrastructure just wouldn't be possible because it's not possible to do under this. Um, it would effectively become against the law. Yeah, exactly, pretty much. Um, and it, that opens up for us and other groups to run sort of uh, court cases that mean that would forbid something. You can forbid um, like uh, fossil fuel extraction or clear-cutting forest or all of these things that would be blankly against um, this emissions reductions curve. And in so case, the legal precedent it yeah. would set would be absolutely massive. It would completely redefine what's possible and not possible to do in Sweden. And I get that that's really terrifying for some people, but I think we need to get past the point where we're more scared of the um, sort of shift to a better society than we are of like the climate crisis, because the climate crisis is significantly scarier. And if you lose, where do you go from there? There is obviously three levels of court, so... Whoever loses in the uh, first instance in the district court will almost certainly appeal. And the same in the regional court. So possibly this will end up in the Supreme Court, maybe even probably. Um, And if we lose in the Supreme Court, there's the possibility of taking it to the European Court for Human Rights. Uh, And if we lose in all, um, all these instances, then we will be liable to pay opposition legal fees presumably that also depends on the uh what the court says and what the state asks for um but we have plans to want to run other types of sort of environmental legal activism so as a group we will probably run other lawsuits um 
there's a lot of ways to advance this struggle uh, in, the, in the courtroom. Do keep us informed. Anton Tomfogin, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. Keith, this theme of um, intersectionality, of bringing in other things, is this an important thing to do to widen the debate, do you think? Also, this te- theme, the yeah, not team. Yeah. <laughs> There you go, that clip of Greta Thunberg taking the piss out of my Dublin accent and my inability to say TH is properly unless I really concentrate on it. Never gets old really, does it? There you go, teenagers taking the piss out of me. Well, I suppose that's pretty much my life at the moment, as you well know. Anyhow, that is almost it for this week. As I say, heading back down to Malmo next week. So if you have any stories for me, we've already got a whole bunch of stuff uh, booked in down there with John Noonan and with the teachers down below there. Uh, We'll probably be back in Fagans as well. If you haven't tried the fish and chips in Fagans, and if you live in Malmo, you probably have. uh, It's absolutely magnificent. Good size of a portion there as well. And across to Tourism Ireland. If there's anything else that I should do or see while I'm down there, do get in touch and do let me know. Because there's a whole bunch of stories down there now. Not, Not only their parade, lads, you know. And just as I was saying, that or wasn't there somebody getting in touch there and wasn't it Chris O'Reilly over beyond in Gothenburg we spoke to Chris about the handball world championships that were going on there in Sweden a few weeks ago but he's also very heavily involved in the Gothenburg Fringe Festival and he wanted me to share a few things with you there's a couple of sort of Irish themed or uh, with Irish influence uh, shows that are going on over there god I can't even speak at this stage getting too late and I need to get this podcast out but they have if you go to gbgfringe.com you'll find absolutely everything that's going on there right and there's a couple of uh, it's a fringe festival so there's a couple of wild and wacky and wonderful things that are going on there Dream Gun Film Reads uh, are one of the things that's taking place they're taking place I think on the 10th and the 11th on the 11th of March they're doing a reading of the film Titanic right you may have seen it your man Leonardo DiCaprio was in it uh, and the day before that on the 10th at 9pm in Quartier Sianan uh, you'll be able to see them reading Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone and there's also another uh, drama or another sort of um, performance taking place and that is called Bird about town by Amanda Doherty and that has also taken place on the 11th and the 12th of March both times at 6pm about 50 minutes long that one uh, I'm not going to tell you the details right go to gbgfringe.com uh, check out the events you can buy the tickets there the tickets are from 100 crowns for Bird about town and 150 I think they are it's about 90 minutes for the film readings so uh, well worth getting along today and of course Chris very heavily involved down below there in the Fringe Festival uh, the last but not least this week right um you will have seen, if you're listening to the Global Gale podcast or any of the other things I do, or if you're looking at the things I do on social media, right, and consolidating everything, rather than have a separate Instagram account for Irish and Sweden, I'm going to get rid of that, you know, gradually, because it's just, there's, there's too many accounts flying around the place, and it's too hard to try to keep track of everything, because sometimes I get a message on Facebook, and then you'll, Rory, Rory Moore above there is mad for the messages on LinkedIn, and then I won't be able to find it, and then he messages me on Instagram, and he goes, did you see the message on LinkedIn? And I go, Rory, I'm grey enough already, and I'm little enough hair left and you're doing this to me so I'm trying to consolidate everything in the one place so it'll be at Philip Ablana on Instagram if you're not already following at Philip O'Connor on Twitter is where I am at my most uh, active and noisy and that kind of thing uh, Philip O'Connor journalist on Facebook and just a regular Philip O'Connor those of us who've known each other for a long long time will know me from that back when Facebook was a, a very active platform and of course you'll find me on LinkedIn as well and if you can go to patreon.com forward slash errormanage.com and throw a five or a month in there lads I have this idea 
that in a couple of years time I'd love to be doing sort of only this right doing any amount of podcasts for people around the world for the Irish community around the world I've even come up with a name for it I'm calling it public service podcasting right because BJ's as RTE aren't going to be making any programs for the Irish in Sweden or the Irish anywhere else unless they happen to be in Ireland so I'm really hoping to sort of turn that into something viable that we can do and to just continue doing the things that we've always done in terms of promoting Irish culture and Irish people and Irish business and backing one another up and giving people a platform to talk about the things like uh, that Anton was just talking about there for instance you know but I can't do it without your support and without the support of the Irish community here in Sweden and around the world it's been, I've had some fantastically generous sponsors Martin Hessian and Veerstrums has been here since the, the get-go and he's uh, continues to sponsor the podcast James Linus very generously sponsored the podcast there recently remember his jealous devil charcoal is going to be coming out in shops now now the snow is melting and you'll be firing up the barbecue again so you can get your hands on that as well and of course the Irish Chamber in, of commerce in sweden we're looking at uh, i was talking to somebody the other day can't reveal too much now lads but there's a great idea for content around business and business being done in sweden by irish companies and by irish people as well so if you just held on there now we'll get to that as well but brilliant if you can continue to support me individually and the work that i would do that's absolutely majestic and you know what if you can't do it financially that's fine right but do me a favor um share the podcast where you can throw it up you know take the link and if you just click on the link if you're listening to it on your phone on spotify right click on that and it says share and then just go to your instagram story and tag me in it and you know, share what you liked about it or just share it to your friends back home or your friends around the world or you know if you hear something from the, the global gale that might be relevant to people you know who are teaching in dubai should jesus go ahead and do that as well because that's a huge help as well it teaches the spotify and all the other algorithms that with the content we're making is worth it and it puts them in front to more people so if you can contribute financially patreon.com forward slash errorman in stockholm if you can't that's grand but give an L share on the facebook or on twitter or on instagram sure and we'll get the word out there huge thanks to anton for coming in can't wait to see how that case goes and i might nip down to the courthouse at some point if there is going to be a hearing to see how he's doing down there uh, and see how they get along and before i go anywhere now and, and wind up this podcast let you go about your week right i just wanted to say a huge congratulations to my wife maria lance o'connor who just completed vassal up as we're loading this up the night before so if you listen to this on the monday it comes out the night before she made her way through vassal up in under 12 hours with a busted shoulder 90 kilometers go back over the episodes you will have heard carl lambert talk about team ireland when a few of the lads did it 10 or 12 years ago but uh, she took it on together with her cousin and she did absolutely brilliantly she's a very private woman she doesn't like me talking about her uh, but it's just one of those things I'm so proud of our lads to see her going across the line and that um, I always thought that she would have been brilliant at any sport and I'm, I'm almost afraid that she would have been better than me at most of them but to see her achieve something like that was absolutely tremendous altogether so kudos to her and to everybody else who was involved in that that is it for this week I shall be back to you from Malmo next week and then we'll have a couple of podcasts in the bank there so we can breathe out a little bit over St. Patrick's Day but needless to say we will get out and about and bring some of the sights and sounds of that as well right until then take care of yourselves take care of one another and i shall talk to you very very soon indeed on the irish in sweden podcast <laughs>